There are some hard words there in uh, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look at some more hard words uh, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, it's a parallel text. Um, Luke 14 is where we are today. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 33. Oops, I went all the way to John. Too far. Hear the word of our God. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it uh, begin to mock him, saying, This man was, began to build and was not able to finish. And what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures which you have given us by the Spirit in order to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. Please make it profitable to us this morning, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature, equipped for good works as we study the Scriptures this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It actually was, is a fairly common problem throughout the history of Christianity, uh, but in the early 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had noticed that uh, a form of discipleship, a form of grace, had begun to capture the Lutheran church in Germany. And it, it conveyed what he called, we began to call cheap grace. And, and by that, what he meant was, it was a, a grace, a forgiveness of sin that did not include real repentance. Uh, a grace of forgiveness that did not include discipleship. A bearing of the cross and following Jesus. And so, uh, he ended up giving us one of the more significant books of the 20th century, The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, which looked at a lot of the hard sayings of Jesus with regard to discipleship. And really, what it boils down to is that question of, uh, what is a disciple anyway? And as we begin to think about discipleship within our congregation through the Vine Project, we're moving to the second conviction, and that second conviction is addressing that very question. What is a disciple? We have to know what we're shooting at, so to speak, to know if we're attaining our goals we, we can't get to the how we make disciples unless we understand what it is we're trying to create or fashion 
within this church or any other church. Now, these words of Jesus that I, that I just spoke of, I just read, are sandwiched between his conflict with the Pharisees about his followers. If we, if we read the passage ahead of us, it's these great parties that are taking place, and the Pharisees are very critical of what Jesus has been doing because he, he lets all of these unwashed masses in, all of these great big sinners in. And we find that if we, if we go to the end, and in the beginning of chapter 15, uh, we have that question kind of coming up again, the criticism of Jesus by the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees were concerned about was that Jesus was essentially preaching some form of cheap grace. Where, uh, you know, whoop, everything's washed and now you're perfect and, and uh, that's all that matters. And so what happens in this text is that Jesus is turning to the crowds, not the Pharisees, uh, but Jesus is beginning to lay out what it really means to follow him. Uh, so that these people understand what they might be getting themselves in for should they decide to become his disciple. Because becoming a disciple of Jesus was not like becoming any old rabbi's disciple. He was going to demand more of them than any other rabbi had demanded of their disciples. And so we see as we uh, look at this text, Jesus has begun to head towards Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, and he's going to become the Passover lamb for his people. He knows he is going to die in place of his people. He knows he will be crucified. And as he and his his uh, disciples, the twelve, and possibly the, the others that had kind of accumulated to him and, and been following him, including the women. Um, as they're moving towards Jerusalem, we find that great crowds accompanied him. And now, we're not really clear as to what exactly that means. Uh, does that mean that there's, there are people who are traveling with him? But wouldn't that be a great crowd? Singular. Okay, is this groups of people that come out at each city as he passes by on the road to, to, to join him and join the throng? So that, you know, we have all of these crowds kind of joining to, to form a bigger crowd as all of these pilgrims make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover? Or is it just people who are coming out in great numbers to, to see what happens as Jesus passes their city? Not really clear, because Luke... It's not really clear. But what we see is that Jesus turns to these crowds, the implication that he did this more than once, he said this thing more than once. So if you were one of the 12 and all the rest of the people that generally traveled with Jesus, you heard this repeatedly, and it began to become very clear to you what you have gotten yourself into. But he turns to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his own wife, his own children, his brothers and sisters, indeed his own life, okay. he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is going to repeat that phrase, cannot be my disciple, three times. This is the first of those three times. 
And most of you probably went, hate? How can I hate those people? Is Jesus asking his disciples to break the commands of God, in particular, the fifth commandment, which we see in Exodus 13, uh, as honor, sorry, 12, honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you? Uh, This command of which uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says that this is the first commandment with a promise, are we, are we to say that, that Jesus is calling us to break this commandment? No. This passage, which is confusing to us, I think is clarified by the parallel passage in Matthew, and that's part of what we do with Scripture. It's called the analogy of Scripture. It's how we interpret Scripture. And if there's a, an unclear passage, we look to a more clear passage to understand the less clear passage. Okay, And there in Matthew, it says, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So we see a slightly different formulation. And so this just means that Jesus probably said it in different ways at different times during this journey to Jerusalem. But Matthew helps us understand that this is really about priorities. This is really about which way will you choose? Whom will you choose when you have to choose? That's an important question. Perhaps it's more important uh, than we realize. And I believe it's important for this reason. Everybody wants a life that matters, right? Everybody wants significance, Okay, to feel like their their life is significant and their life is meaningful, and what we do is we we all have somewhat different measures of that significance. And Jesus is here addressing some of those measures of significance, because there are some people who live for the approval of mom and dad. And so, you know, when they have to make a difficult decision, what mom and dad say, even if they're adults, matters more than anything else. There are other people who live for their spouse. That's the most important voice that, that, that they can hear. And so they find their significance in first having a spouse and then making that spouse happy. There are others who are driven in terms of the most significant thing for them is to have a family, not just a a spouse, but to have children. And their children become the thing that matters most. What matters for my children? What's, you know, everything gets shaped around their children. Some people measure life by money, by success, by fruitfulness. And so all of their decisions get boiled down to what's best for my career. And Jesus addresses all of these in this one statement. This measure of our 
meaningfulness, this measure of our significance begins to occupy the place of number one priority in people's lives and it influences every decision that they make. We see it all the way back in Genesis 3. Because there's Adam. Adam, who has enjoyed fellowship with God. Adam, who knows he was made by God. Adam, who understands that God gave Eve to him to be his necessary ally, to be his helpmate, to be, you know, his intimate ally in fulfilling the mission that God has given him. And when he has to choose between Eve and God, he chooses Eve. Adam knows the commandment. Adam knows the penalty. Then the day that Eve eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she's going to die. And who does Adam choose? Eve. And that moment, Eve became more important to Adam than God was. Eve became his God substitute. Eve became his idol. And don't think it's just about Adam and Eve. That was one of the great things that plagued John Newton. If you read his letters, he's constantly going back to the to reality that he loves his wife so much and he was afraid that she would be an idol to him. Adam broke the very first commandment that day in the garden. The first commandment which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Those gods can include things like money, which Paul says that covetousness is idolatry in Colossians 3. And so when we place ultimate significance And any of these things, what we are doing is we are committing idolatry, placing them above or beside God in our decision-making pattern. Now, gifts from God, which I would consider parents and spouses and children to be gifts from God, Uh, Jobs or gifts from God, these things are all good, but gifts from God make horrible gods and they cannot provide the lasting significance that we need. For instance, from our perspective, at least from an earthly viewpoint, Madonna has everything she needs. She's got fame, She's got more money than I could ever imagine spending in my entire life in one year. <laughs> okay. And yet in interviews, she has said that with every album, she has to prove her worth. In other words, her significance is wrapped up in her work. And she, and she is under that impression uh, that if this album fails... I'm not worth anything. If life, in other words, doesn't work out the way she wants it to work out, she's not worth anything. And that's what idols do to you. 
Uh, they create this sense of if something happens to whatever you've placed number one, your life is now meaningless. Jesus speaks a second hard word in the midst of this, which ties into it. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That phrase again, that hard saying again. In other words, what Jesus is getting at here is that he requires that disciples stop giving ultimate significance to his gifts. That his disciples stop giving significant, uh, ultimate significance to their relationships. Uh, that his disciples stop giving ultimate significance to everything that is not him. So when we think about what a disciple is, the first way to answer this is that disciples are people who turn away from empty ways to find meaning in life. And that has a part two to it that we're going to shift to. But keep that in mind. Turning away from the meaningless ways of finding significance or the empty ways of finding significance or meaning in life. But they're not just turning away from their organizing principle in their lives. And, but we want to recognize that that is incredibly painful to do. Okay? To uh, change the organizing principle of your life, to, to get rid of an idol is incredibly painful for us. But they're leaving this superficial form of significance in order to ground their significance in Christ himself. Okay? Christ himself. Not Christianity, Christ himself. Jesus says, whoever uh, does not bear his own cross and come after me, not simply follow my rules, follow my dictates, but come after me, cannot be my disciple. Jesus is declaring that he is the most significant, he is the ultimate meaning in life. He's more important than your own life even, which boggles our minds as how someone could say that. Jesus is then to be followed and so all the burden of our hopes, all the burden of our dreams, all the burdens of our pains, all of these things are a heavy weight for us to place upon Jesus. Jesus' call to such a commitment in some ways sounds outrageous. I mean, how can a man, a rabbi, make such demands upon people. That they value him more than their family. That they value him more than their jobs. Jesus' Jesus's claim here challenges that first commandment. If he is simply a mere man, then Jesus is asking them to follow a false god. 
But if Jesus is, in fact, the God-man, he is Yahweh in the flesh, okay, then he has to offer that requirement. Because he is saying, there can be no gods beside or above me. Because I am the one who made you, and I am the one who's about to redeem you. Okay, do we understand the significance of what he's saying here? He's placing himself as the one that the first commandment talks about. No one before me, no one beside me. As we think back to the Garden of Eden, let's think about Eve for a moment, not necessarily Adam, but here is Eve. She's been told by the serpent that she's not really going to die. And beyond that, God is really withholding something good from her. That if she eats from the fruit of that tree, then she will be like God. She'll know good from evil herself. She won't have to be told by God what is good and evil. She'll have that power all to herself to understand this. And she studies this tree. She sits and she deliberates. It's not an impulsive kind of decision that she makes. Uh, She's thinking about this. We don't know how long, but we do know that she perceives that this fruit looked pretty pretty good. And what's going on? It's the first commandment. Eve is deciding that she should be in the place of first priority, not God. Adam's going to choose Eve as first priority, but Eve is choosing herself as first priority in this garden. Repentance which is essentially what we've been talking about, the, the turning away from one thing and the turning to something else. Okay, This repentance is renouncing self as God. It's renouncing the God wish that we all struggle with because we all want to be in control of our life and turning to the one who is God, who calls to us in grace and mercy. Repentance chooses God, chooses Jesus over self. So think about this for a moment. The one who bids you to come and to die has himself gone and died to remove your guilt for your disobedience. He's already come and died to remove the wrath of God uh, that concerns your rebellion, your God-wish in action. Displaying this redeeming love reveals a Savior who, in fact, can be trusted with our lives. And so disciples are people who turn to Jesus as what matters most in life. In other words, disciples are people whose primary concern is what does Jesus care about? What are the priorities of Jesus in my life? 
what are the commands of Jesus in my life? So it, it becomes less and less about what they want or what that significant person in their life wants or what their job demands and more and more about what Jesus calls them to be and do. And so Jesus says, come after me. This coming after me involves a surrendering of that self-determination. It involves a surrendering of that autonomy which just means law, self-law. Okay, being a law unto yourself. It's really a surrendering of everything that Eve sought, as well as everything that Adam sought. And what happens is that we fall and step behind Jesus, and we accept the boundaries that he places in our lives, that he establishes in our lives, and in uh, Matthew 11... Jesus expresses it as, as we saw in our call to worship, take my yoke upon you. How many of you have a yoke? Not an egg yoke. The other yoke, yoke. Yeah. It's agriculture. We're, not, we're not living in an agricultural society. Uh, we don't have beasts of burden. But what a yoke was is that you would use that to keep the animals together, to mo- be moving them in the right direction, to carry some burden for you. In this case, uh, we see it's a big cart. Okay, And what happens is uh, you are able to use the yoke to change the direction of the animals. So they go where you want them to go as opposed to where they want to go. What Jesus says is, come to me, because unlike the burden of your parents, or your children, or your spouse, or your job, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Yeah. (laughs) I know, you weren't excited about that, but I'm going to steal it anyway. Okay. Um, That's what he invites us to to be yoked and led by him. To to come under his authority, uh, not to add his yoke to the other yokes that are on you, but really to be taken out of those other yokes so that the only yoke, the only burden you're carrying is really his. As God and Savior, Jesus is the most satisfying and the one that we obey. And part of this gets to what is called, in one book I'm reading, uh, I'm almost done with it, uh, The Dynamic Heart. And uh, this guy is a counseling book, uh, but I'm finding it very helpful to think about preaching as well. That the heart really, because, you know, we don't, think about it the way they used to think about the heart. The heart is just the inner person. And it really has three functions. There's thinking that takes place. There's emotions, which are really evaluations, or what we value is that our emotions are a signpost to say, this matters, this matters. Okay? Um, And our will. And all three of these interact with each other. And so, essentially what he's getting at is that you will not choose to follow Jesus unless your heart values him and you think he's worth it. 
So all of these three things are, are working in conjunction and conversion. Okay? Suddenly we have a new estimation of Jesus. Now we have a new value of Jesus. He, he, he really is significant. And now we choose to follow him. Because you will not choose to follow him unless you think he matters. You will not choose to follow him unless you think he's God. It's into this that Tim Keller speaks, I believe. There's about the graciousness about this whole thing, as well as the commitment of the whole thing. He speaks of a a woman that was in one of his congregations, tells a story in a number of sermons. And he found her to be particularly perceptive because she understood that if it was all of grace, then there's nothing Jesus can't ask of me. If he gives me everything, there's nothing he can't ask of me. But if I have contributed something to my salvation, besides my sin, if I have contributed something to my salvation, in other words, that it's grace plus something, uh, then I have, a way, I have the means to say to Jesus, not this, Jesus. You can't ask this of me. When we grasp that it is all of grace, we begin to say that Jesus can ask anything of us. Because he will ask hard things. He will not ask sinful things. Everything's going to be in keeping with his character, but that does not mean he will not ask hard things of us. In fact, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That sounds really hard to me. (laughs) Self-denial. Not my favorite thing. I want to eat when I want to eat it. I want to drink when I want to drink it. I want to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And coming within the boundaries of what Jesus says chafes. And yet, how can I say no to him who gave me everything? That's the point. You experience this, right? Parents, You understand this. How can my child, whom I have given life to, whom I have fed, whom I have clothed, whom I have disciplined and encouraged, you know, whom I've given all of these toys and, and technology, how can my child say no to me? We recognize that, right? That's really what it boils down to. Not in a guilty way, not a guilt manipulation way, but he has given us everything. So why do we cling and try to get our own way? And so disciples are people who surrender their wills to Jesus. They're people who turn away from empty ways of finding meaning in life. They're people who who turn to Jesus as what matters most in life. And they're also people who surrender their wills to Jesus. And today I've only got one more thing that I'm going to add to this list of things. 
Jesus appeals through two parables uh, to their common sense. And there's something that runs through both of these parables, and that is, it comes in different phrases, but one is count the cost, and the other is deliberate, which is another way of saying count the cost. Okay. And the first of these two parables is a man who wants to build a tower, and the second is a king who is threatened with war. One's an ordinary guy, and one is a king. One guy's decisions only affect really him and his family, and the other one... They affect the whole nation. Okay. One just wants to build a tower. And the other is considering war. Jesus points out that the man who wants to build a tower, if he doesn't count the cost if he doesn't measure it and compute what it's really going to take, if he acts on impulse and starts to build without knowing he can finish, he's going to have part of a tower for the rest of his life for all of his neighbors to walk by and snicker at him. He's forever going to be the guy that everyone makes fun of when they're working in the fields or when they're hanging out in the marketplace by the gate of the city. He's going to be the guy that they're all going to make fun of because he's the moron who has the partial building forever. The king faces a far more severe consequence to his actions than the possible possibility of ridicule, however. He faces the possible devastation of his entire nation by a, a far superior force, and he f- faces the possibility of either death or being brought into the court of the other king as a slave and possibly a eunuch. But everyone in his audience gets it. Before you start something, you better think it through. Being a disciple is not an impulsive decision, but it really, Jesus is trying to communicate one that requires evaluation. We see something similar in marriage vows, at least the ones I typically use. So if you got married by me, you probably heard this, <clears throat> and I take it from the Book of Common Prayer. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. In other words, don't run into marriage. Uh, don't, don't just get caught up in all the, the, the warm, fuzzy feelings that you have because you've got this brand new relationship and it's so exciting. And I, I now look back and think about some of the women I could have married. Um, yeah, I can't really cover that up. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad that I married the one I married. Not that they're bad people, but it would have been bad for me and I probably would have been bad for them. Okay, I would have been bad for them. Marriage is to be entered into with deliberation. Not lightly, not rushed, and not for the wrong reasons. And so as we think about discipleship and and whether one becomes a disciple, and I don't know, maybe this means some people walk out this after and never never see them again. I have no idea. In addition to um, the cost of being a disciple, there is also the cost of not being a disciple. That has to be factored into the equation. I'm thinking about buying a car right now, and I have to think of uh, the 
the cost of buying it as well as the cost of not buying it as I try to figure out life. Okay? And that's similar to this. Because, in fact, there are some who did not finish. We think, obviously, of Judas, who was there listening to this and continued to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem only to then betray Jesus. Infamously, we also have Ananias and Sapphira who thought they wanted the glory of the community without really the price to be paid to gain that glory. And so they lied about the price of the the land that they sold. And they claimed that they were giving everything to the church when in fact they were holding stuff back. They weren't following Jesus. They were really about themselves. The tragic consequences. We think of Demas, who Paul knew and loved, and Demas left him and abandoned him because what? He loved the world. And all of these people started but did not finish and experienced tragic ends. We see this as well in the, in the parable of the sower, but you know, some, some disciples fall away because they didn't count the cost of, what, of not running their lives. And so when Jesus asks something big of them, they go, no, and walk away. That's Demas, for instance. But some disciples fall away because they didn't count the cost of suffering for him. The, the reality that being a disciple of Jesus does involve picking up your cross. Consider what it means to not live for approval. Consider what it means to not live for status. Consider what it means to not live for wealth. Consider what it means to not live for pleasure. Consider the cost of discipleship. What does that look like? Instead of talking about me, I talk too much about me. Uh, Amy and I, over our vacation, watched a movie called I Am Michael. And it's a biopic. And, the, and I, I will, if you decide to watch it on Netflix, the first 30 minutes are tough. Okay, you're going to be, you're going to see things you don't want to see and you can't unsee. All right. But Michael is the, it's the story of a gay activist. Okay. He and his partner, I mean, he he formed this new magazine that was trying to um, give significance and meaning to people who uh, had, who were homosexual. And so it, that's how it begins. This is a man who only has one family member left, his daughter, I mean, not his daughter, his uh, sister, who from his perspective had abandoned him once he came out of the closet. And so really he has, within his community, he has kind of it all. And then something changes. His partner has a dream job that he wants to take. And what it means is leaving the safe confines of San Francisco to go across the country to a different place. 
And it begins sort of a chain reaction as Michael begins to evaluate what matters in life. And he begins to think about the afterlife, something that he and his friends made fun of all the time. There's one line, I can't remember it precisely, but basically, they can't wait to not exist. But he begins to think about his mother and begin to think, how can I live in a world where my mother no longer exists? When I die, I want to be back with my mother. And for some reason, he begins to read the Bible. And he begins to evaluate his life. And you see him slowly making changes, slowly withdrawing from, from this relationship. It's, it's difficult to make the break uh, that he's going to break, that he's going to make uh, eventually. Uh, but he begins to distance himself and eventually says, I can't do this anymore. The Bible reveals a God very different than, the, than the, what I thought it was. And he decides to follow Jesus. He decides to leave the lifestyle that he knew. And it wasn't easy for him. Uh, There's all these scenes where he picks up the phone and he calls his former partner because he misses that person. Uh, There's these scenes when he looks upon people who are, um, you know, they're close, they're intimate, and, and, and he struggles with the fact that he lacked that in his life. And so, in other words, his decision to leave a life to follow Jesus was costly. Michael is now a pastor in, I can't remember if it's Nebraska or Montana. I think it's Montana, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. But that's what it looks like. Weighing everything, and finding that following Jesus is what matters more than all that other stuff. Is it difficult? Yeah. Paul Tripp puts it this way, though, to remind us, the God who calls us to a radical new way of living meets us with radical empowering grace. I'm going to read that one again. The God who calls us to a radical way, new way of living meets us with radical empowering grace. In other words, you can't do this apart from grace. You can't follow Jesus day in, day out, apart from grace. The only thing that's going to keep you there with Jesus is grace. So I don't think you embark on this journey in your own power, and your own strength, or anything like that. It's got to be entirely in dependence upon the Jesus who calls you. So disciples are people uh, who did the math to see that following Jesus was worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about costly grace. It's grace because we don't deserve the friendship and the protection of Jesus. We don't deserve uh, the blessings that Jesus gives us. Uh, All of those things, the privilege that he gives us. It is costly precisely because it costs Jesus everything. It cost him his life in order to purchase our forgiveness. 
But it also costs us the right of self-determination, the right of pursuing life and things that only bring death to themselves. But disciples are people who've weighed it, who've measured it, who've calculated it, such that they give their hearts, their minds, and their wills to Jesus in order to follow him. There's someone else who made that calculation. He was a member of a famous rock band. For those of you who like prog rock, you probably, well, even anyone who likes classic rock, Carrie Livgren from Kansas. They had everything. And then Jesus pursued him. He started reading that Bible. And the next thing you know, he's a Christian. And, uh, you know, Steve Walsh doesn't like singing those Christian lyrics, and he leaves the band. And eventually Carrie left the band, and one of the songs he wrote on his own is one called I'll Follow You, and I think it captures this. I don't usually do a poem. This is not really a poem. It's a song. I'll follow you because you give me the desire. Okay, grace. I'll follow you leaving the world behind. I'll follow you though you take me through the fire. I know I can never be the same. That is a pretty good description of discipleship, an apt reflection of what Jesus says. Because when Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to die, as Bonhoeffer said. So if we're to take these four threads and try and put them together, what we have, I think, is reflected in my addition to the Vine Project on this. Disciples are forgiven sinners who are submitting to Christ in repentance and faith in all of life. And we're going to return to that subject next week and explore it a little more from a different angle. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that um, discipleship is for sinners. People who don't have it all together. Uh, People who can be forgiven by Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is also going to change us. And so help us to, to follow him. Uh, to help us to see the place, the ways in which we're not following him, to, to recognize the ways in which we've let certain things to become more important, too important, more important than Jesus, uh, so that we can turn from that and give him our undivided, undivided attention again. Uh, Father, this is a life of faith and repentance, is what Jesus calls us to. And so uh, help us uh, to engage in that. Help us to trust him that this will, in fact, be more than worth it. But really the most rewarding thing we do, and that being with him, being part of his family, is the most significant place that we can be and the one that gives true meaning to life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.